Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, creator of the universe, who gives us life and sustains our lives and brings us together in this very moment. We bless you, God, for new beginnings, uh, for the transitions that a lot of people have faced in the past few weeks, in the coming couple weeks, as schools are reopening and people are returning to school, whether that be online or in person. We pray that your presence and your guidance would protect us and help us to manage this situation in such a way that we do as little harm to each other as possible. I ask that you keep us safe and keep us mindful of our love for one another. We bless you, God, for who you are, for who you've called this community to be. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. I'm Ryan Jacobson. I'm one of the pastors here. And I would like to read to you a story this morning. Will you please listen as I read to you from this library of books that tell the story of the call to liberation. These words are from the third chapter of the book of Exodus. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the mercy of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. This is a portion of the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this is it, friends. For those of you that are watching this sermon that have never had the pleasure of joining our community live, there is something about myself that I would like to share. I am not wearing any shoes or socks. You probably can't see it on the live stream, but I assure you that behind this altar, my bare feet are caressing the carpet as we speak. 
In fact, last week my wife and I sent our son to his grandparents for several days, and I was thinking about this sermon, and we were wondering what to do with our time. And so when she suggested that we go get a pedicure and have a date night, I jumped at the opportunity. Thus, even my feet are prepared for this preaching this morning. What I want you to know, though, is that this isn't that strange. The pedicure, yes, is peculiar. It's the first one I've ever had. But preaching barefoot is not something that I uh, miss very often. This isn't my practice every time I preach. But it is something that I do regularly enough that several of my friends in the congregation question when my feet are fully clad. There are a couple of reasons that I practice this. One is obviously relevant to this story this morning. As Moses notices and moves towards the bush burning from within, he hears the voice of God say, Remove the sandals from your feet. The place where you are standing is holy. The call of Moses is the inspiration behind my bare feet. When I remove my shoes and socks before a sermon, I'm reminded that the very ground on which I stand is made holy in the presence of a living and active God. I'm reminded that I stand on this ground for a reason, that I'm called to speak, that I'm called to action, and that in some way I have a role to play in the guidance of this community. While I try not to take myself so seriously, I do take this call seriously. This moment and the feel of the floor beneath my feet ground me in this calling. And it reminds me, even as I leave this place and put my shoes back on, that the ground that I go to walk on is also holy. That I'm still called to the presence of the fiery divine. That I still have a task that God has given me. But let's talk about Moses and this Exodus story. This summer, we've been through the book of Genesis, and last week, Dinah brought us into the Exodus narrative. The book of Genesis sets the grand stage for this story. And the first two chapters of the book of Exodus provide the context and the environment and the setting for this drama. The action of the Exodus, though, really begins in this narrative. This is the primal and archetypal story of the Bible. Not just the call of Moses, but the whole of the Exodus story. It is through this story that we interpret the stories and the events of the Hebrew scriptures. It is this story that informs so much of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it is this story that provides us a lens to interpret our own lives. This story forms the foundation of the story of God for you, the people of God. It's this story that is told and that gives hope through centuries of cycles of oppression and deliverance. This, my friends, is the grand universal story about the horrors of the unchecked empire and the hope of liberation. This is the story of freedom from slavery. But this story in all of its universality begins in one particular place with one particular event. This whole narrative of liberation is instigated by one particular action. 
When we come to this moment of the burning bush, Moses has already been exiled and in the desert for 40 years. For these 40 years, he's been employed as a shepherd, tending to the flocks that aren't even his own. Day after day, day after day, Moses wanders through the wilderness of Midian and of Sinai. He takes his flock from one succulent to the next. He sees rock after rock and bush after bush for 40 years. I've had the chance to hike through the landscape of the Sinai Desert, and I can imagine that noticing the immense beauty of the place, for it is beautiful, but noticing that beauty probably wears away in day after day of oppressive heat and rigorous landscape, repetitive tasks, and the monotony of the surrounding. But one day for Moses, something different does finally happen. Moses finally notices something new. A bush with a flame of fire burning within, and yet this flame does not consume what would seem to be the fuel. The flame, this word for flame in the text is levah. And this is an important word because its root is the same as the word for heart, lev. These two words, heart and flame, levah and lev, are inexorably linked in the Hebrew mind, and it's not hard to imagine why. Even today, when we speak of the heart, we speak of passion and fire. The calling of Moses begins with his heart. Moses' heart for the freedom of his people is displayed well before the flame in this bush. The cause of Moses' desert exile is that he's seen an Egyptian taskmaster beating a fellow Hebrew and decided that enough is enough. He can no longer sit in the comfort and privilege of his Egyptian upbringing, no longer be silent in the face of the violence done to his people. Moses clearly has a heart and a passion to see his people liberated. Even the impulse to action required to bring this liberation about. And yet his first attempt is rather disastrous. He answers violence with violence and gains no trust from the Hebrews. He must bury a body and perhaps even bury his own heart in the sand as he flees for safety. But this passion, this heart, and this flame is rekindled after 40 years in the desert. God draws on what is already inside of Moses and calls him into a partnership that will guide him into more effective action. You may have also noticed that there's an interesting way that this story, that this episode is worded. The text doesn't say that Moses noticed a burning bush, but instead that Moses noticed a flame from within the bush, that the bush itself was not a flame. This peculiar wording has caused commentators to ask an interesting question. A burning bush is likely not too difficult to notice in the desert, but the text says that God waits to see that it is noticed before speaking. What is more challenging to notice, perhaps, is that the bush is ablaze and yet unconsumed. Commentators have asked how long this bush was alight before somebody finally noticed. Perhaps many shepherds had walked by this blazing bush and had even seen the flame. 
but not noticed the particular peculiarity in this flame, nor felt the flame in their own hearts kindled. Perhaps even Moses had walked by this very burning bush time after time, not noticing yet that his heart was slowly resurfacing. Whatever the case, finally in this particular moment, Moses noticed and his heart would begin to blaze again. Moses would go on from this place, after some hand-waving certainly, but he would become the agent with whom God partners, the one who would lead the people out from under the empire and into the promise of life and liberty. But it is ultimately not Moses who is the liberator. This title surely belongs to God, as it's not even Moses that instigates this action. It's not Moses that begins this story. So hear these words also as I read to you from this same library of books that tell the story of the God who liberates. God heard the groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This, too, is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. God is the one that calls Moses, directs him, gives him presence and purpose. God is the one that will ultimately send the plagues and split the sea and take the people as his own, giving them an identity other than that of slave. And this is the text that tells you why. Because God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. These verbs end up reforming a refrain of sorts as each of them but one repeats in the verses that we spoke from chapter 3. The one that's not repeated is the word remember. But its absence is as striking as the presence of the other verbs. God needed to only remember once. He remembered the covenant that he had made and he went into action. These other words then repeat. God heard the cry. God saw the misery. God knew the suffering. Biblically, to know something is to experience something. The word for knowing is related to the word for hand. To say that you know something is to say that you have felt it, that you've experienced it. God felt the suffering, God felt the pain, He experienced the misery. This is not a far cry from the cross. God heard the cry and felt what had caused it. God saw the misery and experienced his own pain and grief and sorrow. God remembered the covenant, felt the sting of promises unfulfilled. God does not just hear and see the pain and the oppression of his people, but shares it with them takes their suffering on as his own. God knew. And it's this knowledge that compels God to act. But once again, this is not yet the unexpected and surprising piece of this story. 
God, of course, unsurprisingly, is the liberator. God is the one with the power and the will to liberate and free the people from oppression. But just like Moses, it is not God that instigates the action. As Walter Brueggemann points out, the exodus is not initiated by either the power or the mercy of God. God is just the second actor in this drama of liberation. And so finally, hear these words as I read to you again from this same library of books that tell the story of the cry for liberation. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their oppression, their cry for help rose up to God. This is the story of God, told by the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is where the Exodus story really begins. This is what compels the action. This is what creates the environment and demands change. The Exodus is instigated with a raging cry of self-assertion. Again from Walter Brueggemann. In the moment of crying out, of letting pain become public and audible, the slaves broke with the definitions of reality imposed by the policies and values of the empire. The empire characteristically preferred silent slaves who present no social embarrassment or administrative inconvenience. Silence among the oppressed means that they have conceded the oppressors, to the oppressors, the right to define reality. The startling moment of this narrative is when that silence is broken. The beginning point of the Exodus is rooted not in any theological claim, but in the elemental fact that human bodies can only absorb so much. The story of liberation begins when those who are oppressed can no longer stay silent. When those that are suffering cry out in agony and in agency for the world to change. When John Wesley was beginning to organize the early Methodists, he asked those that were interested in delving deeper into a life of discipleship a pretty simple question Do you desire to flee the wrath to come? This question certainly sounds archaic and apocalyptic in our 21st century ears. Wrath isn't a word that we generally hear outside of the Bible very often. Commentators have said that wrath can be understood as frustrated desire. When we long for something to be and yet it is not, what we feel is wrath. We feel frustrated desire. The testimony of the biblical text is that the desire of God is for the freedom and flourishing of every single one of his people. The testimony of the biblical text is that this God will go to any length to ensure this freedom and flourishing. This God will send plagues. This God will start wars and fight battles. This God will destroy oppressive systems and humiliate oppressive leaders. This God will send his very own people into exile when they become the oppressors. This God will even place himself onto the empire's own execution stake in order to give flourishing 
and freedom to his people? Do you desire to flee the wrath to come? Is a question that asks whether you want to frustrate the desire of the God of the Exodus. A desire to flee the wrath to come is not just the vulgar idea, as Wesley put it, of avoiding damnation in hell. Instead, this is a desire to join and cultivate the flow of love and grace, of justice and liberation that God has already set in motion. People are groaning around you, crying out under oppression, real people. In our own particular moment, Jacob Blake and his family are crying out. The God who hears and sees and remembers knows the suffering of his people. He feels it. And according to this story, is compelled to act by that. Do you desire to flee the wrath to come? Have you seen a burning bush? Have you paused and taken notice? Have you slowed down? Have you noticed a flame of fire from within your own heart? Have you a word to speak or an action to take that when withheld feels like a flame burning to get out, as the prophet Jeremiah puts it? Have you taken the time to listen for the call of God in your own heart? If you have, remove your sandals, for the place where you stand is holy. Amen.